kids, you're dismissed for your classes. Adults, let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of First Peter, where we have been studying for the last few months. We've learned a lot, haven't we? I know I have been really uh, challenged and encouraged by this book um, as we have talked about the call to become, becoming more mature disciples, becoming people who are moving past the milk of the word and moving to the meat of the word, who are exemplifying uh, maturity and strength and boldness in our walk and making an impact on the world. A mature disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, especially in relation to this book, in times where we're tested by cultural opposition and where our faith and commitment is kind of put on the line as it was for these believers. You know, when Peter and the other disciples started walking with the Lord, they're, they're, uh, very quickly they were identified with Christ. I've tried to really this week think back to what that must have been like as they left their families and their jobs and their homes and started to walk with Jesus day after day. And because the crowds were not immense at the start, they would become that. Uh, these men really were seen as his followers, as his disciples from the early time on. And this concept of being a disciple uh, came from the Greek culture. It was where you would sit uh, in the presence of a master, a teacher, someone that you wanted to kind of mentor and influence your life. And when you became a disciple of a certain teacher, uh, you would spend time with them. In many cases, you would live in the same place that they lived, or you would uh, spend hours every day kind of uh, listening, learning, matching their, uh, their lifestyle, and being influenced to the point of being like them. So this concept of being a disciple wasn't just that they followed him around uh, like little puppies and, and just kind of watched. They had given their lives, they had committed their lives early on, even though they probably didn't fully understand what that meant. They had committed their lives to being his disciples, to walking with him, living with him, learning from him, modeling him, uh, following the calling that he put on their lives. That's what they were called to do. And in the early days, there was a uniqueness to that. Nobody else was following him, and they were kind of the chosen 12, so they were with him from the start, and it was new and fresh, and they had never kind of seen anything like that before. Then they started to get integrated as his ministry continued, and, and they were called to a higher level of commitment. But they still didn't quite fully get what was going on or what it was going to cost them from a personal level. Then he went to the cross, and everything kind of changed. They lost hope because they hadn't fully understood what he had told them and what he had said was going to happen. And as they sat in the upper room on the weekend before the resurrection happened, I have to believe that they asked themselves, now what? What do we do? We've walked with this man for three years. We thought he was the son of God. We thought he was the Messiah, that he was the savior, but he's been killed. They didn't have the hope of the resurrection. So for a couple of days, they kind of sat and I, and I honestly believe they were saying, now what? Now, do we go back to Galilee? Do, is everything we've set aside for the last three years gone? W- what do we do? After Jesus resurrected, and after he left and went back to heaven, then things started to change. Then they started to grasp the calling on their lives. And when the Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, uh, 
and they're given this fresh commission from the Lord to go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. That's when the power came upon them and they understood the extent of the commission on their ministry. Now, as that happened, parallel to that, the risk increased, the criticism increased, and the opposition increased. And as of Acts 3, they're seen as rebels. They're seen as against the Jews. They're seen as against the religious establishment. They're seen as against culture. They're seen as against Rome. They're seen as against secularism. And Acts 4 says that people started to recognize them by their identification with Christ. The people started to say, these men, these women have been with Christ. They have attached their lives to Jesus. But in doing that, anytime we attach ourselves to Jesus, the, the parameters change of how people are going to view that. And for the disciples, it was really immediate. Once the Holy Spirit comes, Peter, preach, Peter preaches at Pentecost, thousands get saved, the church explodes, it's unified, they're meeting every day, and instantly the opposition comes, and they start to get told, you can't talk about Jesus, you can't live for Jesus, you can't proselytize, you can't live as disciples, you guys just need to shut up and, and be quiet and, and stop railing against culture and stop talking about this Jesus. We don't want to hear about him, we don't know what to do with him, just stop talking about him. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're his disciples. So they go from being disciples in the classic sense, following this master, now to being called, as of Acts 3, the apostles. An apostle is somebody that has a mission. They are sent with a word, with orders to carry out. In other words, the responsibility ramped up. Not only in terms of their calling to spread the gospel, but even more so in terms of their personal behavior. And now in terms of their reputation. Because Jesus was gone, the Holy Spirit had come, but people couldn't see that. So now they weren't identified. Well, that's one of Jesus' disciples. All the attention was on Jesus. When Jesus went back to heaven, all the attention now is on us. All the attention is on his disciples, his apostles, his children who are given this commission. So the disciples' responsibility changed from just being close to the Lord to now being the ones that represented the Lord. As we've said, there's probably nobody that understood that change and that differentiation more than Peter. And you see here in 1 Peter chapter 4 that as he writes, and we've seen this throughout our study, that as he writes to other believers who are facing a serious daily challenge to live out their faith publicly because of criticism and overt opposition, that he focuses on this subject of what it means to be a mature disciple. And most of the description in this book, as we've seen, is on the practical application of our faith and the word of God on how we live and how we talk. Now, for these readers, the ones who got this letter from Peter, that was especially important because they weren't necessarily attached to a local church. This is not the epistle to the Ephesians or the epistles to the Philippians or the epistle to the Thessalonians. This is, as he says in chapter 1, to scattered believers who are kind of out there, who don't really have a connection to each other. So Peter writes this letter, and this letter would be transferred from place to place and believer to believer. 
So he would send it to me and I would pass along to you and you'd pass along to the next person. This was a precious letter that nobody pictured would 2,000 years later be studied in Racine, Wisconsin as a book of the Bible. So this letter was passed around. And these people are living with conviction, without much spiritual encouragement, without much support, without this. They didn't have the privilege of gathering together every week and talking about the Lord, and praising Him and singing and calling on His name. They were, they were spread out. And as they live out their faith, they're living it out with the mounting pressure against them. And the pressure was, don't stand as a disciple, don't stand as an apostle, just live like everybody else. Now, how many times has that temptation crossed our minds this week? The lure of conformity is so strong. The, the appeal to just give in and, and be like everybody else because we don't want to be isolated from culture. We don't, we don't want to be different. We don't want necessarily, we do in our heads, but when it comes to practicality, we don't want to be identified. Well, that person's a Christian and they hold biblical beliefs and they're very conservative in their lifestyle and wow, they're very different. I don't, I don't know if we can hang out with them. That's a constant stigma that we feel as believers and whether you feel influenced by that or not, it exists. And it's a pressure that's there. Now the church hasn't helped much because it has been influenced to fit in in order to appeal to the world rather than being passionate in our conviction and trust the Holy Spirit that he will draw people to himself if we do our job. And it's also part of the reason that Christians have become kind of clever and stopped calling on the name of the Lord because they thought that they could come up with a better plan and strategy than what God designed. And how many of us know that that never works? There's no substitute for calling on the Lord and trusting him and saying, Lord, give us wisdom and give us help to reach our culture for Christ. The other part of the problem is that it's hard. Plain and simple. It's hard to live as a mature disciple in any culture, especially in the first century and especially in the 21st century. And Paul knew how self-absorbed the Greek and Roman cultures were. He knew how self-indulgent they were, how, how they lived for the moment, how there were no consequences. There were, they were open about sexual immorality and they were open about drinking and they were open about uh, just living a, a, a kind of a lascivious lifestyle of just anything goes. They, they were unashamed about that. It was part of the culture. And even the gods that they have, that had, they would worship in that way with prostitutes in the temples. And it was just, it was just awful. And Paul knew, uh, excuse me, Peter knew that. Then we look at it in terms of our culture and we say it's very similar to how we live. So for these believers and for us, there's a very strong and serious challenge, which we're going to read about in a moment, that every day we would live as a bold, unashamed Christian who is not influenced by the world, by by the world's beliefs, by the world's behavior. And as it relates to this passage, and here's really where we want to start this morning. The calling in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, is to be a disciple who abstains from sin. To be a disciple who abstains from sin, 
especially so we would be ready and prepared for the Lord's return. Peter's gone through a lot of subjects. He's talked about a lot of things. But now he gets to chapter 4 and he says, here's the real calling that we have. We are going to have to abstain from sin in order to have a powerful witness and in order to be ready for the Lord's return. Look at what he says here, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, continuation of the thought, chapter 3. Remember, this wasn't written in chapters. It's just a letter. So there's a transition now in his thought. He's continuing what he just made uh, the point about, chapter 3. And he's now taking it to personal application. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised, speaking of the world, They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they're judged in the flesh as men, that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. In other words, even though people are deep into sin, the gospel has been given because anybody can be rescued from sin. How many know that's true? Anybody can be rescued from sin. So Peter says the gospel's given because even though we are under condemnation as men and we're going to hell, the gospel's been given so that people may live eternally. Okay, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, it is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do it as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. We'll touch upon that last verse next week. Now, Peter is continuing the thought. If you go back and look at chapter 3, verse 17, Peter's continuing that thought where he said it's better if we're going to suffer for what we believe. It's better to suffer for what's right than what's wrong. And if we think that's too unfair or too restrictive, then we need to look back to what Jesus has done because Jesus suffered in the flesh for what we did. He didn't suffer in the flesh for what he did. He suffered in the flesh for what we did. And Peter says there will be times of hardship, there will be times of suffering, there will be times of trial and opposition like these believers are facing, like some of you are facing, like we may all face eventually. He says there are going to be those times of trial. So we need to look at Jesus, and he says in verse 1, we need to arm ourselves with the same purpose that he had. Now many of you own guns, and, and you take safety and precaution Very seriously, you also make sure that you have the right ammunition because you don't want to use a nine millimeter bullet in a 30 caliber gun. You don't want to use a 38 bullet in an AR-15 
To be effective, you have to have the right ammunition. You have to arm yourself with the thing that will be most effective. Now, Paul uses this analogy, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, arm yourself with the same purpose that Jesus had, which was to resist sin in order to defeat sin. Not only did Jesus suffer in the flesh to deliver us from sin so we can resist sin, he also gave us a perfect example to how to do it. And verse 2 says that instead of yielding to lust that captivate our hearts and minds, and that's not just sexual. When we hear the word lust, a lot of times we think of that. But this is, this is not that. It encompasses greed and materialism and pride and, 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 and coveting and, and all kinds of things that, that are attached to us desiring, us lusting. He says instead of being controlled by those things, we have to see that Jesus lived to fulfill the word of God, excuse me, the will of God. And First Thessalonians defines the will of God as our sanctification, which we've defined as being set apart to be holy. So the crisis here is that we're tempted, that our lust is appealed to. We want, we want, we want. Culture tells us you better have it. You better grab it while you can. Nobody else is looking out for you. And the more we crave, the more we want, the more we want, the more we lust, the more we lust, the more we covet. And he says, you've got to stop that cycle and arm yourself with the same mentality that Jesus had. Notice Jesus' singular focus. He suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. When Jesus was on earth, as God in flesh, something that is so inscrutable, we can't fully comprehend what that was like. But Jesus came on mission, and he would not deviate for anything or anyone. He would not deviate from going to the cross to be the perfect spotless lamb who would take away the sins of the world. There was nothing that could deter him. There was nothing that could take his focus away from that. Now, the debate has raged for years of whether or not Jesus really could have sinned. Did he have the capacity? Did he really come as a human being with the capacity to sin, not having a sin nature like we do, but pure and spotless with the capacity to sin? Was redemption really on the line at his temptation, or in the garden, or, or was he just living as a human, but with no possibility of faltering? I think that's an important question, although I debated whether to bring it up. I think it's an important question based on what verses 2 and 3 say. Because while there's no one that has the answer with, with absolute certainty, we have to ask ourselves four questions. First of all, if Jesus could not have sinned, why did the devil bother tempting him in Matthew 4? Using the same tactics that he uses so effectively against us. If Jesus could not have sinned, why does the devil tempt him? Second of all, if Jesus couldn't have sinned, how was he tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin? Third, if Jesus couldn't have sinned, why did he have to empty himself? 
Why did he have to humble himself as a bondservant and become obedient to death, as Philippians 2 says? If nothing was on the line other than putting 33 years on on earth until he could go to the cross, why did he have to take those steps? And here's the one that's really a struggle. If Jesus couldn't have sinned, look back at verse 1. If Jesus couldn't have sinned, why does Peter say that Jesus ceased from sin? Now, the verb there is very important. This is why it's very important never to trust just the English word that's in whatever version you have. Always go back when you see a word like that and look at it in the Greek. And there are websites where you can do that or you can get a uh, uh, concordance or whatever. It says Jesus ceased from sin. Now, that does not mean that he started sinning and then stopped. That's not the meaning of the Greek word. The meaning is he restrained from acting. So, important distinction here. It says Jesus restrained from acting on sin. In other words, he never did sin, and he gives us the perfect example of restraining from sin, proving that we can, by his power, restrain ourselves from yielding to sin. And he says, I want you to follow his perfect example. Now, maybe the most compelling part of this instruction is in verse 3. Because he says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter's point here is that before we were redeemed and transformed by Christ, we had plenty of time to experience what the world had to offer. Before we were redeemed, before life was changed, before we got a new life which replaced our old life, he says, you had plenty of time to see what the world had to offer. He calls it the desire of the Gentiles, which is a first century Jewish way of saying you live like the world. And notice how he describes this. Take, take ten seconds on each one. He gives five descriptions. He says, pursuing sensuality. That means to go after excessive, outrageous sexual immorality. He calls the second thing lust. That's a craving for anything that's forbidden. Drunkenness is just that. Carousing means to be half drunk or buzzed. And the particular description of that word is, when you're like this, you walk around talking and singing very loudly. Drinking parties. These are social events centered around alcohol. And abominable idolatries, I said it three times without stumbling, I'm very proud of that, are, are vices that are either illegal or designed to worship anything other than the Lord. Now, when you look at those six things, Peter says that these things, none of them is aligned with the will of God. None of them is aligned with being holy and separate from sin. And he says the times that you've practiced them in your past are a sufficient experience. You don't need them anymore. The Lord resisted the lure, and he calls us in verse 1, look at the word, to cease from participating in them because they lead us away from the purpose of being armed to live like Christ. Now, looking at the trends of our culture and looking at what we're surrounded by from technology to advertising to social networking, it is easy to see that Peter's words almost 2,000 years ago 
were absolutely prophetic in how this temptation is being carried out versus us. Because there are four major appeals that society makes to draw us into sin. Let me give them to you. Okay? The first is the appeal of entertainment. The second is the appeal of social acceptance. The third is the appeal of rebellion. And the fourth is the appeal of multiple options. These have never been more prevalent than they are now. Entertainment is the strongest, probably, of these lures because it fascinates our senses. Entertainment is everything that's being pushed on him to elicit certain feelings and certain emotions and certain reactions. That encompasses technology, encompasses the internet, TV, movie, sports, whatever you want to put in this fist. And so much of the appeal of advertising is centered on the things that Peter lists in verse 3. Sex, alcohol, and the celebration of self. Watch the ads today. If you're watching TV, if you're watching a ball game, watch what the ads are about. They're about sex, alcohol, and the celebration of self. You will be hard-pressed to find a commercial that does not lure you in that way. I even saw an ad. Well, I won't go there. I saw an ad the other day I couldn't believe had, had innuendo in it where I thought, wait a second, I see what they're saying there. And and it took me a second, but it was so subtle, but it was there. These messages now have become so pervasive with the dramatic increase of information and entertainment options. And they've had the net effect of exposing us and our children to every facet of immoral behavior. You can find anything, and I mean anything, on the Internet. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you could not find certain things. You could not see certain things without making a very drastic effort. And there were limits that culture had put. No, you can't see that. You're not old enough. You can't see that. That's forbidden. That's gone. There are no limits anymore. You can see or do anything you want. And that has had the effect of dulling our spiritual sensitivity and getting us to focus on what's unimportant rather than what is spiritually eternally important. We had a joke at camp. You remember, campers? That we know more details about Bo and Sadie and their date and how Willie got upset on what? Tell me the show. Duck Dynasty. We all know it, right? We all know more details about Willie. We can see Willie's face as he was upset as Bo's out there hunting with him. Come on, how many saw that episode? How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know. We know more about that than we do about the Word of God. We name half the Packers roster, but we can't name ten of the disciples. Right? Because entertainment engulfs us. And if we don't believe it controls our lives, just go sit in the mall for a while or sit in a restaurant and look at how many people are on their cell phones looking, downloading, catching up, Facebooking, whatever, and not having a conversation. Entertainment has deadened our spiritual appetite, and it gives no payoff. Then second, there's our need for social acceptance, and that's a big part of what entertainment is pushed toward because community and connection now is defined less by family relationships and church relationships, and it's defined more by social networking. And Social networking has promised greater interaction with people, but it has made our relationships less personal and more shallow. Third, rebellion. 
That's in every part of our culture. There are few things that can be defined as normal anymore. What is a normal family? What is a normal relationship? What is normal in terms of the morality of our culture? We know how we define it. We know how scripture defines it. But society doesn't define it then anymore. And attempts to have moral and ethical standards now, especially those that are centered on the word of God, they are now ridiculed and they're dismissed and were viewed as crazy. Just as the spirit said it would happen. Look at verse four. He said, this is exactly what will happen. And that's fed by the fourth appeal. The fourth appeal is our love of multiple options. We love many different choices. We like to have it our way as was promoted 30 years ago by a famous hamburger chain. And that seems so subtle and so simple, but it's pushed into our notion of having it not only the right way, but having it our way. We want things to be how we want them, and that's made things personal and subjective rather than being focused on truth. And the impact on the church and the impact on the use of the Bible has been significant. How do we deal with that? Ultimately, look back at verse 5. Peter says everyone's going to have to give an account of how they lived. Everyone's going to have to give an account to the Lord of whether we believe the gospel and how we lived, especially if we have believed the gospel. And it's clear from verses 1 to 4 that the full expectation of the Lord is that his people, listen now, the full expectation of the Lord is that his people will completely reject sin And live in a way that doesn't have a shred of worldliness. To the point that people will think that the way we live is strange. Now, here's where the pressure hits. Because verse 4, look at it, says that people around us who don't love the Lord, who aren't walking with the Lord, won't understand what they see as our strange behavior, it says they will be surprised. Now, the word there literally means that they will be shocked because we're so strange. When people look at us, here's what the text says, First Peter 4.4. 4. When people look at us, they should be shocked that we're so strange. They should see us as weird that we've actually set our heart and mind to be holy instead of compromising and yielding to temptation and doing what we want to do and what culture tells us to do. Now, I ask myself and I ask you, is that how we live? Are our lives so different that we have experienced what Peter said that they won't understand why you don't run with them in the same excesses? And he says the net effect of this is people will start to malign you. It's the Greek word for blasphemy. It it means to be criticized and slandered and abused and insulted for what we believe. Now, that sounds really fun. What a great word on August uh, 25th, 2013, that we're being told to be weird and to be abused and to be isolated and verbally denigrated and spiritually outcast in some ways because we stand for the Lord. That, that's the message. That's not my word. That's not what I want to tell us this morning. That, that's what the word of God's telling us. 
And some of you are already experiencing it in your families or, or with your friendships. You've been isolated and you see how challenging and discouraging it is. And that's why I believe this is one of the greatest temptations that Christians face. One of the greatest temptations that we face now and will increasingly face is the pressure to fit in, the pressure to adapt or be quiet about our convictions in order to be accepted or never to hold them that firmly in the first place because we know it will require us to take a stand. Now, we've all experienced this. We've all experienced this this temptation and how we respond says a lot about the depth of our convictions and about the courage of our commitment because there is a cost to biblical conviction. And to know how well we're resisting that temptation, there are two opposing questions that we need to very honestly ask ourselves. The first question is, when was the last time someone stopped being my friend because of my biblical convictions? Maybe the simpler question is, has anybody ever cut off a friendship with you because of the stand you took for the Lord? When was the last time that happened? The second question is harder. How many of my friends would be surprised that the Bible calls me to live in the way this passage describes? How many of the people that I hang out with and socialize with would say, wait a second, you're supposed to live that way, why don't you? You're you're supposed to to have that value and that standard in your life? What's the deal with that? Why why don't you do that? There's no question that culture has reached the description verse 3, but the question is, are we living in the way that verse 4 describes The call here is not to be less worldly. The call here is to be not worldly. So much, I think, of of what we think about is, well, how can I become more holy and less worldly? And the Bible is saying, you shouldn't be worldly at all. You should be not of this world. That's why Peter says back in chapter 1, verse 1, we're aliens. We We don't belong here. We're not of this world at all. The Holy Spirit has indwelled our lives and there is a serious life change. And that means, as Francis Chan said, there should be a discernible difference in our words and our actions and our lifestyle. And we'll be content to live that way as believers because we've had our lives cleansed by Christ and we want to please Him in everything we do. And we'll show His love, verse 8, how it's changed us by how we love each other. But in case we need more push... I don't know why we need more impetus than that. Look at what Peter says in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, I don't think we have to be convinced that the end of all things is near. All the events in Israel and Syria and Egypt and Iran and Russia and even our own country point to what we studied in Revelation last spring, that Jesus' return is imminent, that we should be ready because he said it'll happen when you don't expect it. You'll think there's times of safety, but boom, like a thief in the night, I'm going to come. Are you ready? And we look at the world events and we say, all right, this is, this is happening. Peter, Paul wrote in Romans 13, he said, the night is almost gone and the day of his return is near. 
And he echoes Peter and says, it is now time to waken from sleep, for salvation is nearer than we believed. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly, not in carousing and drunkenness. Notice how much this parallels First Peter 4. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, he says the exact same thing that Peter says. There are three traps, drunkenness, sexual impurity, and pride. Why are those such traps? Because they impair us from what we've been called to do in verse 7, which is to have sound judgment and a sober spirit. In other words, Christians are supposed to be marked by wise clarity, self-control, and a sober spirit. Does that describe you? Is that your focus this morning? What's driving you? What's pushing you this morning? Money? Success? Relationships? Attention from other people? Your goals? Control? What is it? He says, the end is near. How is that impacting how you live? How can we live a life that is approved by the world and endorsed by the world and what's compatible with what it values if we're really saying to ourselves, in one minute, Jesus may appear in the sky. How can we then justify saying, well, I'm just going to live like I want for a while because his return's far away and I'll have time and there will be, I, I, I can live like this for a while and get my act together. No, the return of the Lord is imminent. As I'm speaking, he may appear. Are we prepared for that? Do the people around us think we're a little strange because we're living to please heaven? Or is there not very much with a difference in our lifestyle because we're preoccupied with what's here? That's why Peter says, let's conclude with this. Look back. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of, tell me the next word. Prayer. Tell me more loudly than that so I know you're awake. Prayer. Why does he mention prayer? Be of sound judgment and a sober spirit for the purpose of your witness. For the purpose of living a holy life. For the purpose of influencing people. No, he says, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Why does he mention that? Well, when we're not living right and our values are upside down, we don't pray. We don't want to be in the presence of the Lord. We don't want to hear from his spirit. We don't see a point in praying. But when our judgment is sound and our spirit is sober, we desire to be close to the Lord and to hear from him. Not even to come with all our requests, but just to sit in his presence and listen. He says, if you're of a sound mind and a sober spirit, it's for the purpose of prayer. Now, obviously, prayer is important for us as the end of all things is near. Why? Why should we act on that? Why should prayer become a priority? Well, one answer is the enemy knows the power of prayer. Which is why it is the first thing that he wants to eliminate in churches. Not worship, not preaching, not ministry, not fellowship. He wants to eliminate prayer. Why? Because he's scared of prayer. He knows that it has power. So he wants to keep us drunk with everything else in the world so our minds are not wise and we're not calling on the Lord. The other reason that prayer is important 
is in verse 7. It keeps our heart and mind clear and sober. Without calling on the Lord, we lack wisdom. Without seeking the Lord's direction, we try to do it ourselves. And we get confused and we get anxious and we get fearful. But when we call on him, how many know that we get counsel and direction and peace and clarity and wisdom? We will not get wisdom without asking the Lord for help because the world's not going to give us wisdom. So how do I get wisdom, Paul? How do I get clarity? How do I get direction? I'm confused and I'm churned up and I'm anxious. All right, it's very simple. He says, call on the Lord. And the reason this is so powerful is because prayer causes us to yield to his spirit and to his will, which is important. If we're going to live out verses 2 to 4 and take a stand for him, then I don't know about you, but I don't have the strength and courage to do that on my own. I know it's right. I'm told it's right. I see why it's right. It's logical why it's right. But to take a stand like that and, 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 and to live by those values, that's hard. So, Paul, how am I going to get the courage? How, how, do I, how do I find that strength? How do I stand against compromise and resist giving in to these things that tempt me and these people that are putting pressure on me? Very simply, ask the Lord for help. You have not because you ask not. What was the last time we said to the Lord, Lord, today, as I go to work and I'm around those people that hate you, or as I'm around my friends that want to influence me, teenagers, listen to this. Lord, help me to take a stand for you and to walk in the way that will be pleasing to you. Lord, help me to do that. I don't know how many times in the last two weeks I've just said to the Lord, Lord, help me. Never in 39 years of being a believer have I said so many times, Lord, just help me. I don't know what to do. And you know what? God's answered that prayer every time. How am I going to live and not compromise? How am I going to still have relationships and not participate? Ask the Lord for help. I'm not being trite. That's what Scripture says. And you say, I don't believe that. It can't be that simple. Have you tried it? Because if you don't, it's not going to happen. The Bible says when we call on Him, He not only listens, but he draws near. And by the power of God, he will arm us with the exact same purpose as Christ. He will work when we ask. How many believe that this morning? He will work when we ask. Why would he resist that? Why would he resist when we're saying, Lord, help me to live like Christ? And he's going to go, I don't think so. I don't want to do that. If we come to him and say, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to take a stand. But I want to be like you. Can you help me? God's going to say, I am right there. I will show you how my spirit will fill you and empower you and strengthen you to do that so you can stand for me. I am so glad that you're asking for that. You're going to do my will. Oh, I'm all over that. And if people think that's strange, so be it. We're not walking to please them. We're walking to please the Lord. And we want to be ready when he returns. Because I'm telling you, it can be any minute. Is he going to find us armed with the purpose of Christ? Or is he going to find us not ready? Let's close our eyes. Lord, we ask you to help us. We ask you to help us.
because we need your help. The influence of culture is strong. The influence of peer pressure is strong. Temptation is strong. But Lord, you've overcome those things and you've made us overcomers. So we ask you this morning for strength and for courage and for boldness. Empty us of self, we ask you. And fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need your help. We don't have this courage in ourselves. We don't have this strength in ourselves. But you tell us, you promise us that when we ask, you will answer. And that when we desire to conform ourselves to your will, that you will empower us to live that way. So Lord, I pray this morning for myself and for each person here that this would be the fresh and lasting desire of our heart that no longer would we be characterized by the things of the world, but we would be strange. We would be different. We would be like you. Lord, we know it won't be easy, and we know there will be times where we're severely tempted, but help us. Please give us strength. We pray that with confidence, knowing that you will answer this prayer. And I pray that you will use us in a very powerful way to influence people who look at us and say, what is going on? Give us boldness in those times to respond and tell how great you are and how much you've transformed our lives. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of serving you and the joy that we will have to see lives changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.